Lord, we ask that you will help us to hear your word, to understand it, to know how to apply it in our lives, to remember it, to be changed by it, and to do it. Amen. As we've been hearing the story of Paul over a number of weeks, last week we got to the long goodbye where Paul was farewelling uh, the, the churches of uh, the eastern Mediterranean and going on his way to Jerusalem. And it was a long goodbye, it took him a month to get there, and as it turned out, he wasn't going to die for actually another four years or so. So although there are touching scenes uh, where they gathered together on the beach when Paul was going to get into a ship and they knelt down and prayed together and wept, uh, it's a long goodbye. He's not going to die just yet. But he is going on a journey into danger and death. And he is going, uh, we can tell from some of his letters, he is going with joy, being prepared to suffer, being prepared for whatever might happen to him because of the joy of being able to share the gospel and to do what he was told he would do on the very uh, first day after his conversion tell the gospel not only to the Jews but to the Gentiles, their leaders and to kings and in the end even to Caesar. So he's got to Jerusalem. So we wait with bated breath to see what is going to happen now on this journey into danger and death. And he goes to a meeting. Uh, I've been to several hundred more meetings than I would like, but sometimes meetings are very important. And this meeting in Jerusalem with some of the elders that Paul had brought with him and Luke and the elders of the Christian church in Jerusalem this meeting was vitally important because it was about the church staying together. They were going through an earthquake. Suddenly, not only were Jewish people becoming Christians and having to work out what it meant to be what uh, Jews nowadays often call completed Jews, Jews who believe and have responded to the gospel, but Gentiles, the, the other ones that you couldn't even eat with or share a house with. These people, too, were being included into God's people and it was an earthquake. And through that earthquake, they had to find ways, God had to find ways of holding the church together. It would have been disastrous 
if the church had split in two at that point. Absolutely disastrous. So when he comes to this meeting, he does three things. One of them I'll come back to because Luke doesn't mention it at this point. He only tells us three chapters later. But the, the second thing that he does is to tell them what God has done through his ministry among the Gentiles and how Gentiles all across the Roman, Roman province of Asia and into Europe how the Gentiles have heard the gospel, repented, responded to the gospel and become believers. And they can do nothing, the uh, leaders of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, they can do nothing but praise God. But the third thing that happens is that they say to Paul, we've got a problem. This is part of the earthquake. Jerusalem has thousands now of Jewish people who have become Christians, completed Jews, as we might now say. And they have heard all kinds of stories, all kinds of rumours about you and what you've been doing and teaching. Not so much what you've been saying to the Gentiles, but what you've been saying to the Jews who become believers. And rumours had come to Paul, that he uh, come to Jerusalem, that Paul was uh, telling people, telling Jewish converts, that they could ignore the law, the law of Moses, that they could go into pagan temples, that they could eat blood, that they didn't have to get their sons circumcised, all of that. Most of which was exaggeration and rumour. So there is a very strong point here that hearing rumours and repeating them, even in the church is very destructive behaviour. If you hear rumours, don't repeat them. But it's already happened. They've heard the rumours. And because many of them, in fact, were Pharisees, had been Pharisees, the most zealous law keepers amongst the Jews, they were really nervous. They were really anxious, afraid, maybe even angry about what they had heard about Paul. So the leaders of the Jerusalem church are looking for a way to make it clear to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that Paul has not just flung the law to the winds, that he is still, if you like, an observant Jew, even though... He is preaching that uh, in Christ uh, the law has been completed and that we are not under law but under grace. It's a very difficult time. The church is going through an earthquake. So what they decide to do is this. They say to Paul, look, 
we've got four guys here, uh, Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem, who are under a vow. And you think, under a what and why? If you like to look up the fine details of Old Testament ceremonial law, you'll find this in the book of Numbers, chapter 6. Under special circumstances, if you really wanted to show God that you were sorry for something that you'd done or that you were really thankful for a great thing that God had done for you or if you were committing yourself to some new purpose and direction in life, you could put yourself under a vow, a Nazarite vow, it was called. I don't actually think that that's got anything to do with Nazareth where uh, Jesus grew up, but I might be wrong about that. And in a Nazareth, Nazarite vow, you, you, first of all, you stop cutting your hair. That's the easy bit. The other thing you do is that you stop drinking alcohol. Uh, and in those days, the only alcohol around really was wine. So you stop drinking wine. But more than that, you don't have anything that has come off a grapevine. So you don't drink grape juice. And uh, I don't know if they ate dolmathas in those days, those things which are vine leaves wrapped around flavoured uh, rice. If they had dolmathas in those days, they couldn't eat them. If they had grapeseed oil in those days, they couldn't use that in their cooking. Nothing that came anywhere near a grapevine. And you did this for 30 days. And at the end of that time, you went to the temple and you made a sacrifice. And in this instance, at the end of a Nazarite vow, it was a big sacrifice. The regular sacrifice in the temple uh, was a lamb or a baby goat, a kid, a year old. At the end of a Nazarite vow, it was two lambs or two kids or one of each, a year old. And a ram. Now, if you've ever been on a farm with livestock, the expensive animals are the rams and the bulls and the uh, billy goats. Uh, in Australia, you can pay up to $100,000 for a ram or uh, a bull that's got really good breeding. So taking a Nazarite vow is not a small thing. Then you have to pay someone to shave your head. And I guess the head shaving is a bit like uh, we do sometimes, where you shave off your, your hair or your moustache or something uh, as a money-raising thing. It's a kind of symbol of something serious that you're doing. So James and the other elders say to Paul, we've got four guys here who are under a vow. How about you join them? And as a Jewish person who's been out of Israel for quite some time, the expected thing was that you would do something like this because you couldn't have helped in your travels among the Gentiles. You couldn't have helped 
getting yourself defiled by Gentile food or eating off the same plate that a Gentile had eaten off or whatever. So usually for that purpose, you um, did this for seven days. So James and the others say to Paul, join these four guys and pay their expenses, this big ask actually, pay their expenses, uh, go to the temple with them, have your hair shaved off and they will see that the rumours they've heard about you are not true. Now, Paul could have said to them, look, I'm free from the law, um, God's grace and freedom are with me, I don't have to do any of this stuff from the book of Numbers. But he doesn't do that because it is about the unity of the church. It is about handling the earthquake. So he signs himself up, uh, in his case, to not cut his hair for seven days and to not eat wine or have anything from uh, a vine um, and go along to the temple. And now he has to provide for the four of them and him five uh, lambs or kids and five rams. Like this is a serious expenditure. Uh, and pay somebody to shave the five heads uh, to show that the things, the exaggerations that they've heard about him in the rumours are not true. And he agrees to it for the sake of the church. For the sake of the church. Christians have freedom. Uh, we heard in the reading from 1 Corinthians how we are free to eat food that's been offered to idols because idols are nothing. They don't exist. There's only one God. But, Paul says, if somehow that is going to trouble and weaken uh, a brother or sister of yours who's just been converted from idolatry, then don't do it. You have freedom, but don't necessarily feel you have to use that freedom. You may choose for the love of a brother or sister or for the unity of the church to give it up. The only example I can think about or that, that I could think of in uh, the current experience of the church is among Aboriginal Christians. When I worked in ed administration, I visited all the schools in the state, actually, but um, particularly a couple of Christian Aboriginal schools. And the teachers in those schools, who had all the latest educational theory, were very keen to teach Aboriginal languages in the school and do things in language. The parents said, oh no, oh no, we don't want this for our children. This is all about um, 
our ceremonial beliefs and the things that we have left behind when we became Christian. These are not, you understand, metropolitan Aboriginal people, but uh, in the Kimberley and the Pilbara. Um, for them, Aboriginal language was loaded with all the stuff that they had believed before and they did not want their children learning it. It's it will take to another generation, I think, before um, the languages have cut themselves free from the belief system uh, that Christian Aboriginals have left behind. I'm not saying they should leave their culture behind, but they're leaving some of their belief system behind. That's the example that I can think of. So the teachers uh, had to shut up and, and take a back step and listen to what the parents uh, were saying. Always a useful thing for teachers to do, to listen to what the parents are saying. So this is what Paul does. He doesn't have to, but he lets go of his freedom for the sake of the unity of the church. The other thing that he's done that Luke doesn't get around to telling us for another three chapters is for three years at least, he has been taking up a collection from the Gentile churches to take to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem because they are in trouble. It's not clear whether they are in trouble because they've because they've become Christians and people are not wanting to employ them or whatever, or whether everybody in Jerusalem is suffering because there's been a drought and there's not enough food. We don't really know. But we know that the Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem are in trouble. And Paul has been taking up a collection uh, from the Gentile Christians to bring, to give to uh, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And Paul says to the Gentile Christians, look, you owe it to them. The gospel has come out of Judaism and you have received it. Now you're not in the middle of a drought or whatever it is. Uh, you owe them. And one way to show that you owe them something is to send money to them in their distress. So Paul hands over to uh, the Jewish Christian elders in Jerusalem all this money. And that is an important thing to do as well, to deal with the earthquake that is happening in the church. In 1968, or 69, uh, when people who are 50 or so and older will remember, uh, we had a major earthquake in Perth. It uh, was focused in Meckering. Uh, in God's grace, nobody was killed, though there's an amazing story about a baby asleep in a cot with the walls, bricks falling out of the walls of the house around it, 
and when the parents rushed in, the baby was there with a brick on this side of its head and a brick on the other side, but completely untouched. My mum and dad's house got a big crack through the wall, one they were about to take down anyway, so the insurance company wouldn't pay them for it. Uh, and the tower in St George's Cathedral uh, was shaken and cracked and uh, weakened. And in the uni library where I was, uh, all the books came off the shelves. I had to close the library because thousands and thousands and thousands of books were all on the floor. The most striking thing about that earthquake, apart from experiencing it, the most striking thing that you could see was on the road to Meckering, right where the fault line went across the road. One side the land had moved up, the other side the land had moved down and there was about a metre drop right across the road, right there, like that, completely blocking the road. And an immediate uh, repair had to be done to deal with that great one metre gap, one metre drop. And it's that kind of gap and drop uh, risking the unity of the church that uh, Paul and the Christian elders in Jerusalem are having to deal with. It's an earthquake. And the risk is that the church will be divided. That's why Paul agrees. That's why he's bought the money. And that is why the Jewish elders uh, with Paul repeat what they had decided at the very first of all the church councils that you can read about in Acts chapter 15, that Gentile Christians in order to be able to be in unity together and worship together with Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians were not to eat food offered to idols, were not to eat or drink blood, i.e., I think, uh, black pudding. If any of you have come from Yorkshire or Lancashire, or seen black pudding on a, um, a breakfast buffet. It is basically thickened and congealed and fried blood. I've had it twice, I think, and it's all right. I wouldn't go on a long walk to get some, but that, that's kind of what he's talking about here, that Gentile Christians should not eat black pudding, basically and that they shouldn't eat animals that have been strangled. And the reason for all of that stuff is because the Old Testament view is that life is in the blood and life belongs to God. So you don't drink the blood or eat it. And... Uh, what that has resulted in, in Jewish terms, is kosher meat, which is very similar to halal meat. When animals are killed in an abattoir 
uh, for regular meat, um, they get this thing called a captive bolt uh, fired into their brain, um, which either kills them most of the time or stuns them. Uh, and then the blood is drained out of them because the meat keeps better without too much blood in it. But kosher killing of animals, halal killing of animals, they have to be still with a beating heart when their throats are cut or their um, artery is cut. So a lot more blood drains out of them. Now, there's a lot of questions about this uh, and people are uncomfortable with kosher killing of animals from an animal welfare uh, point of view. People are uncomfortable with halal killing of animals for the same reason and because halal killing of animals requires special certification, which is really quite expensive, which uh, kosher killing doesn't require all that expensive um, supervision. So that's what this is about. Gentiles, you're going to have to live with Jewish Christians, so don't get up their left nostril by eating food offered to idols or eating animals that have been strangled or drinking blood, eating blood pudding, and uh, don't commit sexual immorality, which was rife in Gentile communities, absolutely rife. Nothing much has changed. <laughs> um, but then, that, that, all, that all sounds okay, but then we get Paul uh, some year uh, later writing in 1 Corinthians, actually, guys, Gentiles, it is okay for you to eat food that's been offered to an idol, because an idol is nothing. Just be careful that you are not offending your recently converted uh, from paganism brother or sister, but it's okay. And we heard in our reading uh, from the Gospel of Mark, which of course was written later still, uh, because the Gospels come first in our New Testament, we tend to think they were written first, but they weren't. The epistles were written first, and then the Gospels. The Gospel stories were being told, but they weren't actually written down in the form that we have them now till later. So we have Mark recording that Jesus said, all food is clean. If you can accept any good gift from God of food. It's okay. It doesn't matter what comes into you from outside. What matters is what comes from the inside out. So do we have a contradiction here? Is there a contradiction? between Acts 21 and Acts 15, for that matter, and what Paul says in 1 Corinthians and what 
Jesus' words, which, of course, Jesus' words were said before all of this, but not written down. Do we have a contradiction in the scriptures? And the answer this time is, yes, we do. It's not an apparent contradiction like the one we looked at last time. It is a real contradiction because what it is reflecting is a time of dealing with an earthquake. That takes some time. You don't repair earthquake damage overnight. And this earthquake of Jews becoming Christians and Gentiles becoming Christians uh, and getting together with Jews is an earthquake. And it takes a while for the church to work out how to deal with it. It takes some years to get rid of that one metre drop that breaks the road in half. And what happens is that gradually, as they work it out, prayerfully and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they work out how to be a Jewish Christian or how to be a Gentile Christian in a church with Jewish Christians. It takes time and what we end up with is over time the freedom for Christians to have black pudding and to eat food that isn't uh, killed in a kosher or halal kind of way. Those of you who had a little private hope that the fourth item in there, the sexual immorality one, might get dropped out, I'm afraid, are disappointed. That is what stayed in. But it was for the sake of the church. It was for the sake of unity. And there have been more earthquakes in the church since that time. One that we have forgotten about unless we are medieval historians is that right until the late medieval time it was considered a really serious sin for Christians to lend money at interest. Usury is what the Old Testament calls it. And the Jews were forbidden to lend money at interest. Uh, well, at least they were forbidden to lend money at interest to any other Jew. But they could lend money at interest to anyone who wasn't Jewish. And this came into the church. It wasn't one of the things that you'll find talked about in the New Testament. But everybody knew, everybody knew that Christians could not lend money at interest. And somewhere along the time where the late medieval age moves into whatever comes next, there is an earthquake. And what everybody has thought was sinful is reconsidered. And now, if we wish, 
we are free to put money in the bank and get interest, even though these days that's only about this much. We have had an earthquake over the ordination of women. And that earthquake has not finished happening yet. The Catholic Church is still dealing with it. The Orthodox Churches are still dealing with it. The Baptist Church is still dealing with it. We have barely got past, in, in most mainstream churches, we have barely got past that earthquake before we are dealing with the earthquake of the ordination of active homosexuals. We are right in the middle of that one and we've hardly been able to take our breath from um, the ordination of women. Earthquakes are really painful. They are really difficult. They unsettle us deeply. And whichever way that last one goes, it will be very difficult. It will be very painful. Dealing with this, however it is dealt with, is going to be really hard. Don't overcome a metre drop in the main road by afternoon tea time tomorrow. What matters is that the church in God's grace survives earthquakes and it survives it, survives them because we love each other because we are committed to the unity of the church, because the closer we come to Jesus, the closer we get to each other. Even when we disagree, even when we disagree profoundly, this chapter in Acts, and chapter 15 as well, is about the unity of the church, the church whose head is Christ, the church for whom Christ died. But in the church, we experience earthquakes. The South African church had earthquakes over apartheid. The Indian church had earthquakes and still does over the caste system. We will experience earthquakes, but our commitment needs to be to the Lord. And as we come closer to Jesus, we will be closer to each other even when we profoundly disagree. So let's pray. Lord, keep your church through the earthquakes. Keep us loving you, loving our brothers and sisters, even when we speak out for 
what seems to us to be right when others disagree. Keep your church, Lord, in the truth. Keep us one. Keep us loving each other as brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. Help us to know if it is ever right to splinter off. If it gets that bad, Lord, give us real wisdom to know when to stay and when to splinter. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the Lord of the Church. Amen.